from Colorado Public Radio and PRX. This is On Something. Decades ago, Logan Kinnamore was a heroin user. He spent his 20s crisscrossing the United States, hitchhiking and train hopping. His life wasn't stable. His housing wasn't stable. His employment wasn't stable. And living on the fringes of society meant living much closer to death than the average person. Overdose death. Something he had seen, something he had almost fell victim to himself a handful of times. But one night, he learned about a drug that could reverse an overdose almost instantly. I remember the first time I heard of Narcan. Um, this was probably about uh, 2006-ish. And I was living in Baton Rouge at the time. These, we had some, some traveling kids, like train hopping kids who were staying at the house. And they had Narcan. And I was like, what is, what is this Narcan? And they're like, it stops overdoses. Like, if somebody's fallen out, you can hit him with his Narcan and it stops him from overdosing. I caught up with Logan via Zoom call recently, hence the audio. He says when those kids left, they gave him his own vial of Narcan. That Narcan vial actually that they left, I carried with me in subsequent travels and rescued quite a few people from overdose with that very Narcan. Back then, Narcan was only available by prescription. But the movement to put it into the hands of drug users anyways came from a guy named Dan Big, often referred to as the godfather of the harm reduction movement. When Logan first pocketed that vial of Narcan, he didn't know any of this. He didn't know that it was a movement and that it had a name, harm reduction. He just recognized it as a tool for survival, a tool for staying alive, which he did. Thankfully, he survived to finally quit heroin years later. And by the time he quit, he had learned that it had a name, harm reduction. And thanks to activists who came before, he knew it was a movement, a movement he was happy to sign up for when he returned to his hometown of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I was like, there is no, there's no Narcan in the city of Baton Rouge. There's tons of drugs. A lot of people who were still using drugs back then and still use drugs now, but there was no Narcan distribution in Baton Rouge. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I can do something about this. So he founded a nonprofit called No Overdose Baton Rouge and became a one-man Narcan distribution operation. That's actually how Logan and I met in 2014 when I moved to Baton Rouge to work for my first public radio newsroom. I did a story about him. I even got to ride along while he handed off an overdose kit to somebody. Now, forgive the unfortunately ironic police siren in the background of the story. This was my first radio job. A few hours ago, Logan Kinnamore got a call. It's a sunny Saturday afternoon, and now he's sitting in the parking lot of a CC's coffee house waiting for someone. Yeah, they saw me. I already got the nod. A man walks across the parking lot and gets in Kinnamore's car. He called asking if Kinnamore knew where to get clean syringes. Kinnamore brought him some, along with something else. And I also wanted to bring you a Narcan kit. It's, it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. 
Kinnamore opens the kit to show him 10 clean syringes and a 10-dose vial of Narcan, otherwise known as naloxone. He takes him through the symptoms of an overdose, how to inject someone, what to do after administering the drug, and urges him, if all else fails, to call 911. So I'm glad you called today, man. This is, in essence, what harm reduction is all about, giving people the tools to make decisions for themselves and keeping them safe, regardless of whether they decide to use drugs or quit. Logan also lobbied the Louisiana legislature to pass harm reduction policies, any laws that would remove criminal barriers to life-saving health care for drug users. It was a small step forward. We got a good Samaritan law. That's right out of it, but it was very truncated. Um, it only protected the victim of overdose from prosecution for possession of drugs. It didn't protect any bystanders. When I listen back to that story that I did about Logan in 2014, I hear a grim reminder. An overdose crisis is what I called it at the time to refer to deaths that were in the double digits. What can you call it now in 2021? when 93,000 people died last year of an overdose. Harm reduction, a movement that focuses on preventing death and disease rather than drug use itself, could be a possible solution. Except it's fairly controversial here in the United States. Today, a special solutions-oriented episode. I promise not to bum you out, I swear. This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Harm reduction. In the seven or eight years since I met Logan, a lot has happened. The overdose crisis rages on. And by and large, our response has been to keep criminalizing drug users. Activists like Logan are asking you to change your mind about that. The larger harm reduction movement pushes back on punishment and tries instead to meet people's basic needs. So what does that look like? Well, let's take safe injection sites, for example. They're facilities where drug users can use under the supervision of medical professionals. They have them in the Netherlands, Canada, Germany and Australia, but not here in the United States. You blindsided us. So tell everybody in South Philly, generations of families who don't leave, who have college degrees, who sit there and stay in their community, who raise our children there. I care about what my children have to see at six and ten years old that I have to explain hardened drug addiction. This is unacceptable and you are a sneak about it. This is the reaction from a Philadelphia resident who did not want a facility like this in her backyard. This reaction, captured in an NPR story, is a common one to most harm reduction policies in the United States. A Philadelphia judge ultimately blocked this facility from opening last year. Now, we have the data, and it doesn't lie. Arrests and incarceration aren't saving lives. This is a story about people who want to try a new approach. That's why this is the next installment of Fair Shake on something's series about the pitfalls along the path to social equity. Well, how's it been going since last we talked? 
It's a whole new world. Yeah. This is Cassandra Frederique, executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance. You might remember Cassandra from such works as, well, last season of On Something. She and I discuss growing up in New York City with the daily threat of police violence and how cannabis was often used as an excuse for that violence. That's why the Drug Policy Alliance has worked so hard for cannabis decriminalization. But in recent years, they've shifted more into harm reduction. So Logan is the grassroots guy, saving lives with direct activism and lobbying for local laws. Cassandra is the national policy powerhouse, writing and campaigning for laws all over the country that would do the same work on a bigger scale. And in order to dream big like that, she had to have inspiration. But she would have to cross an ocean to find it. You know, Portugal decriminalizing all drugs in 2001 is no small feat. And I think everyone's been watching it for a very long time to see if the sky was going to fall. Decriminalizing all drugs is the dream of harm reduction advocates. Really, everyone we interviewed for this episode brought up Portugal. And Cassandra actually hopped on a plane to Portugal for the Drug Policy Alliance. And in fact, a lot of our partners joined us to go to Portugal in 2016 on a study trip to see what worked and what didn't work, what are things that we have to consider before pushing decriminalization in the U.S. And here's what they learned. Decriminalizing was only the first step. After taking that first step in 2001, the country also gradually expanded the availability of addiction treatment. Since then, overdose deaths have dropped and there are far fewer new cases of HIV and hepatitis C. The country's prison populations have also diminished over the last two decades. For Cassandra, the experience was eye-opening, to say the least. This dream wasn't just a dream. It was effective. And um, it also just really affirmed our imagination that what we are dreaming about is possible. It is important for us to recognize how backwards the U.S. is on these issues. I think when we were talking to folks in Portugal and we were telling people how through criminalization, people can lose access to public housing and to their benefits and their health care, people were just like, what? How is that possible? Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. There was so much to think about on the flight home, back to America, where all of the possible solutions seemed to focus first on stopping people's drug use, not getting them into stable housing or getting them health care. What if, she thought, we just switched the order and met people's needs first? For harm reductionists, we're agnostic about whether you use drugs or not. What we have a strong opinion about is whether you live or die. If the scope of harm reduction sounds like it gets bigger and bigger, that is the point. Because a real human's life isn't typically separated into neat little compartments. And a drug conviction, for example, is an effective reminder of that. It is perfectly legal in most places in this country to discriminate against someone who has a criminal record. That is, if you are a landlord renting out an apartment 
or an employer trying to hire an employee. People with criminal records can even be denied federal student loans. Even if life did keep itself to convenient little compartments, a criminal conviction would come through like Miley on a wrecking ball and make a big mess. And that's why harm reduction isn't just about drugs. I think that harm reduction is about so much more. It's really about how do we give people the opportunity to make the choices that they want and also provide them um, the resources that might make their choices more sustainable. Cassandra says harm reduction is the core belief that people have a right to take risks. They have a right to make their own choices. And punishing someone for their choices tends to hurt more than it helps. People believe that tough love is important in order to deal with someone who uses drugs. And I like to say as a social worker that love isn't supposed to hurt. We teach that all the time. Um, But it is a lesson that we always cast aside when it comes to drugs. And instead of tough love, you're coming to folks with what instead? Information, compassion, and an affirmation of their dignity. That is why decriminalizing all drugs is the dream. It's the ultimate rebuke of the war on drugs. Cassandra studied what the world could look like in Portugal But she did more than study. She crafted legislation. I mean, that's kind of her job. And that legislation has become law in one state so far, meaning that right here, stateside, the dream is one step, well, one state, closer to reality. After a quick break, we log some miles of our own. Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling and I am so grateful the reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. Welcome back. Before the break, you met Logan Kinnamore. And now, meet Haven Wheelock, the boots on the ground. Haven lives in Portland, Oregon, where she's worked for nearly 20 years herself as a harm reduction activist, going all the way back to high school. I mean, I really did get into, like, HIV prevention work to piss off my parents. Um, (laughs) I wanted to, like, talk about sex and drugs in high school. That's what it came down to. And I've made an entire career out of my, like, desire to, like, talk about sex and drugs all the time. Um, Ah, Are they still pissed? (laughs) No. Well, maybe. Sometimes. (laughs) I think overall they're very proud of the work that I do as a whole. But, yeah, it definitely doesn't... They'd prefer not to hear me talk about the types of lube we hand out or (laughs) those kind of things. 
HIV prevention eventually, logically, led to the type of work she does now. These days, she works at a nonprofit called Outside In. And Haven's official job title is Injection Drug Users Health Services Program Coordinator. But for obvious reasons, she says no one ever really uses that title anyways. On the day-to-day, she oversees a syringe exchange program, overdose prevention programs like Narcan distribution, and other programs that offer free screenings for HIV and hepatitis. It's a lot of behind-the-scenes work, but she still comes into contact with drug users almost every day. On top of all of that, she has also taken her own trips to the state house to successfully lobby for harm reduction policies in Oregon. In 2019, Haven partnered with Cassandra and the DPA and a whole host of others to push for decriminalization of personal drug possession in Oregon. It would later come to be called Measure 110. That's right. It's the dream. The dream that seemed lofty and out of reach, even to Haven, who had just agreed to help run the campaign. Like, I I signed up for a losing battle to, like, start the conversation, right? Like, I wanted and needed to be saying out loud that we need to stop punishing people for their substance use disorders. Like, we need to start thinking about a different system. Her role was chief petitioner, chief signature gatherer, in other words. During a pandemic and a presidential election year, no standing on the sidewalk with a clipboard like the old times. Petitioning had to be done by mail, which Haven worried would be off-putting for voters, but it wasn't. When summer arrived, it was a long, hot, and tumultuous one, full of protests for racial justice. when it felt like the whole city was out on the streets some days, with the police violently lashing back by night. Those who weren't caught in the haze of tear gas could see all of it unfolding live on their social media feeds. That unrest didn't overshadow Haven's efforts, though. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I mean, I'm sure you saw Portland was very excitedly protesting throughout all of this. And um, to be able to say, yeah, here is an action. Mm -hmm. You can vote for this. You can sign this petition. You can, like, do a thing that will help to, like provide services that aren't law enforcement to this community. So this mo- this movement's happening, and here you are saying, you know, here's something you can do about yeah, it. Yeah, here's an action. Yeah. Right? Like, I really think, like, people are really see now in a way that they haven't seen in my previous 18 years of doing this work. Because people know what we're doing is not working, right? I think people are ready to try something new. Talking with voters one-on-one, Haven was surprised by how little opposition there seemed to be to Measure 110. The dream didn't seem too lofty after all. In fact, the closer the election came, she said the more real it felt. God, I mean, those of us in the harm reduction world have been talking about the need to decriminalize drugs forever. The campaign didn't even have organized opposition until the very last few weeks before Election Day. 
and it came mainly from Oregon's private addiction treatment industry, rehab facilities that have relationships with drug courts. In fact, drug court is where most of their referrals come from. The industry saw Measure 110 as a threat. Like, I think there's a really pervasive idea that, like, on some level, people will not seek treatment until they are made to seek treatment, right? This idea that people who use drugs never have the autonomy or want to stop is just, to me, as somebody who literally spends, you know, five hours a day with people who use drugs, like, people want to stop. Yeah. (laughs) They don't need someone to coerce them into it. And also, Measure 110 is not ending drug courts, they're still going to be drug courts, mm-hmm. right? Like, they're not going anywhere. Right. Um, you know, I wish Measure 110 was ending the war on drug users. It's not. But it did make it onto the ballot. To everyone's surprise, even Havens. Here's what the voters would be asked to decide. Should the state decriminalize personal drug possession? and also make an unprecedented commitment to funding a higher standard of addiction treatment services statewide using pot taxes. Imagine that. It was election night 2020, and in lieu of the usual victory party at the local bar, the party was on Zoom. But no matter, the excitement was palpable. Haven and her fellow organizers sat back and waited for results and thankfully did not have to wait long. So, yeah, um, many of us who worked on the measure were all on a Zoom call together. The election ended, I think, at eight. And so we just started frantically refreshing the secretary of state's website again and had election results within two minutes of the polls closing, saying we won. Not only did Measure 110 pass, But it passed overwhelmingly. All right, so you got a very ambitious, progressive ballot measure passed on the first try in 2020, the the hardest year of all years in recent memory. Why do you think that happened? Like, I... I definitely believe that the racial reckoning and um, the Black Lives Matter movement is a big reason why this initiative was able to pass. And for white people finally opening their eyes to be like, oh, the war on drugs is killing black and brown communities and that those lives do matter and we need to do better to support people who are using. And I think that all of that kind of swirls together around this passing, right? I think the people of Oregon were brave. And I think that 2020 helped make us brave. Twenty twenty was painful. It was a year of untold loss. But in that hostile climate, people still dreamed of something better than their current reality. And thousands, millions of people got out into the streets to demand it. A year later, sure, no one has quite defunded the police, but Oregon voters said let's try something just as ambitious, just as bold and see if we can't save some lives along the way. Haven called it brave, and that's a great word for it. That's a great word for Logan's small-scale outreach in Baton Rouge, for Cassandra's national policy work, 
and for Haven's on-the-ground campaigning in Oregon. But you cannot have bravery without hope. This whole movement, this harm reduction movement, it runs on hope. And how fitting is that for our super special solutions episode? On the next On Something, we take on a question that has plagued scholars for ages. Who who is it that you you see most often engaged in debate about this? Is it people like me, journalists? Is it students? Is it people in the industry? Journalists, for (laughs) sure. It's always journalists. All right. Maybe plagued is a strong word, but we're still asking the question. Does the word marijuana have racist baggage? Next time on On Something. On Something is a labor of love, reported and written by me, Anne-Marie Awad. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Today's episode was produced by Luis Antonio Perez. Our editors are Joe Erickson and Dennis Funk. Find a list of all of the talented people who helped to make this episode in the show notes. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org.